Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. We're recording live today in front of an audience of American Purpose members. If you'd like to join us for future recordings, just go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Daniel Shulman, author of the new book, The Money Kings, the epic story of the Jewish immigrants who transformed Wall Street and shaped modern America. Uh, Dan, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And congratulations uh, on the new book. So who were the Money Kings? So the Money Kings were a really remarkable group of German Jewish immigrants who mainly came to this country uh, in the mid 1800s. The main character in my book is a fellow named Jacob Schiff, who is not very well remembered today. But uh, he was during his era, one of the most renowned investment bankers, not just in this country, but worldwide. He played a pivotal role in the financing of the railroads. One of his claims to fame was turning around the bankrupt Union Pacific line. But his legacy extended well beyond that into Jewish philanthropy. He and his allies, who are the other uh, quote unquote money kings that I'm writing about, members of the Goldman Sachs, Lehman, Seligman and Warburg families, they really helped to build the cornerstone of American Jewish life in America. They founded and funded a dizzying array of Jewish institutions in this country that helped immigrants, other Jewish immigrants, uh, mainly from from Russia and Eastern Europe, come to this country and and rapidly acculturate. And I mean, their rise is a genuinely astounding story. I mean, most of these uh, characters, they arrive in the United States in their in their teens or 20s. They're, they're either poor or certainly of limited means. Uh, they start life very often as peddlers or on market stalls. I mean, it's become unfashionable to talk about the American dream. But at the very least, their story shows that America was an open elite. It's very interesting because if you... If you read the story of Joseph Seligman, who is another character who runs through my book, he was a, he was a very uh, famous turn of the century uh, investment banker who got his start peddling. You say, wait a second, I think I've heard this story in one of Horatio Alger's books. Uh, and then you learn that actually Horatio Alger lived in Joseph Seligman's home and tutored his sons. And after, you know, after dinner every night, they would retire to Joseph Seligman's library and Alger would sort of soak up his story, uh, which at least uh, Seligman's relatives believe sort of diffused into some of his tales over the years. But yes, the rise of uh, investment banks such as Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers and J.W. and Seligman Company and Kuhn Loeb were, were really a remarkable trajectory. All of the founders of these firms came to the United States and peddle in the interior of the country often. And the foundations of these firms were often, you know, small dry goods shops and clothing stores upon which they built these massive empires. There's always in this sense of ambiguity about them. The title of the book, uh, Money King, in some ways is something that newspapers at the time often use actually as an insult. So Money King, Jacob Schiff and uh, so on. But it, but it is also the start of this uh, obsession of a, a new obsession in some ways with wealth and power the corporate titans, if you like. Absolutely. And this group were very, uh, very much part of that culture during the Gilded Age. They were, I, they were part of this uh, new money crowd. And it's interesting, money king was a term that was applied to 
not just Jewish bankers, of course, but folks like J.P. Morgan, Rockefeller, uh, Gould, people of that set as well. And it was often, it was an expression of awe. Look at this, look at these people lording above us. But it was also a dig at the unaccountable power uh, that a lot of these people held over the American economy. And I mean, they lived uh, an opulent life as well, that uh, one that any viewer of the Gilded Age TV series will recognize. Oh, absolutely. There's some remarkable stories of what would go into moving between their various vacation residences and, you know, how many train cars would be required to transport the luggage and all the horses um, and the servants and that sort of thing. And our crowd, uh, they may or may not have called themselves. <laughs> you you discuss all of that, but but it does point to a to an interesting element of the story. How, despite the rivalry that they very often had, they did nevertheless perceive of themselves as being a group. They they certainly were a cohesive group, and and some of this came back to the fact that they were Jewish. And while um, the Jewish investment banking world during that era did a lot of business with firms such as J.P. Morgan, uh, run by Christians. At the end of the workday, there certainly was a social separation. So the social life of many of these bankers, really from day one in New York, they knew each other. Um, they worshipped together. They were involved in philanthropic activities. And it's kind of remarkable if you go to a place like Salem Fields, which is a, a very well-known cemetery outside of New York, where many of these bankers are buried, how you can sort of get a sense of how close in death and in life they were. Yeah, it's, it, you start and finish the book at, uh, at Salem Fields, the, the funeral of, of Jacob Schiff in, in 1920. Uh, one of the things that is really striking to me about that is the way in which it brings the Lower East Side to a standstill, including many of the poorest in society who lined the streets as his uh, cortege goes by. It, it is one of the striking elements of this story, how these characters bring together the experience of Jewish immigrants, rich and poor. You know, that scene really struck me when I, when I read about it in the newspaper clips as I was researching this book. When Ship died, it was an occasion of almost royal ceremoniousness. But it wasn't just the the elite who attended his funeral, although they very much did. Um, at probably every major banker in New York City was in the pews at Temple Emanuel for his service. But was what was so affecting about it was that um, the storefronts and peddler carts of the Lower East Side also shut down that day, and waves of Jewish immigrants walked up to Midtown to pay their respects to Jacob Schiff and actually joined the funeral procession as it went uptown and over the Queensboro Bridge uh, on the way to Salem Field. And, and that's that's something that seems to endure. You you include at the, at the beginning the, the story about your own father and, and taking him to Salem Field to see these uh, tombs and so on, that there's a sense that for him um, and for you, I think, that these characters in the book, they do speak to a universal story uh, about the Jewish experience in America. You know, what really drew me into this story was this connection that I did not know at the time between my family and folks uh, like Schiff and the Lehmans and the Goldmans. And that connection is my 
my paternal um, grandfather and grandmother were immigrants from what was then the Pale of Settlement. And they came over in one of these waves of immigration uh, between the 1880s, really, and, and uh, 1910 or 1920. They settled in Williamsburg, very poor. But at the time, they would have known who Jacob Schiff was. He was the, uh, he was the leader of American Jewry, in addition to being one of the nation's most famous investment bankers. And whether they knew it or not, um, Schiff had sort of helped to shape the destiny of, of my family, but also millions of other uh, American Jews who are descended from Russian or Eastern European immigrants. In a very real way, he and his allies made it possible for millions of Jews to come to this country, both through their advocacy against um, nativist immigration restrictions. That debate has not shifted too far from where it was uh, back then, but also in terms of building all of these institutions to help Jews find jobs, um, find homes, have coal in their furnaces, learn English. The amount of institutions they built and, and their philanthropy is just sort of staggering. And I don't think, um, in fact, I know, you know, Schiff and his allies did not realize that, that they were shouldering this responsibility when it began, but this, it just snowballed. And as Jews continued to come, they continued to step up. And this was both selfless and there was an element of self-interest there. Schiff and other German Jews who had come over earlier, often propelled by the revolutions that occurred in Germany and Europe um, in 1848 and 1849, they had achieved some success. Um, and they were very conscious of their place in the American social hierarchy. So it was very important to them that this newer wave of Eastern European and Russian immigrants rapidly Americanize. And they knew that their image would be also determined by these other immigrants that were coming into the country. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that is so fascinating about the book that, I mean, because it it starts before the Civil War, but then takes us through the Civil War, the Gilded Age, through the First World War. You know, in, in many ways, this is a history of almost a century of the of the American experience. Very much so. And in this story, you sort of see the rise of modern finance um, as well. And some of the institutions that have come to really shape and define the modern economy. So institutions such as the Federal Reserve, um, this was an, an institution that comes about uh, through the efforts of Paul Warburg, one of the figures in my book, along with, with other people. But if you're looking at the financing of the railroads and American infrastructure, um, this was the period where America came to be. And I often feel we're still living in the Schiff era. Some of the, the things that you're, you're talking about there, the battle of the giants with the, with the railroads is a, is a brilliant part of the book. And the politics as well uh, is so fascinating and so contradictory in places. For example... Uh, you show how the likes of Schiff uh, are getting hammered by Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who who accuses them of crimes of cunning. But, but then uh, we get to the 1904 uh, election, and, and here's Schiff financing TR uh, in that election because the president was prepared to uh, challenge the Russian czar uh, about the treatment of Jews in the Russian Empire. So it, it really is a an incredibly um, dynamic political period. And these characters are right in the heart of it. 
you're zeroing in on just a very fascinating period. And it also goes to uh, the heart of what Schiff's priorities were during that era. You know, as much as he was involved in business and he was a titan of finance, he always made time and in fact seemed to prioritize his philanthropic work and anything that had to do with improving the condition of Jews throughout the world. Um, and you would also see this in his funding of Japan during the Russo-Japanese War. That was a major, a very interesting episode. Japan was struggling to find financing and they approached Schiff um, and he agreed to do it. It made sense financially, but to him, this was also about teaching Russia a lesson. For decades, he had been trying through various means to get the Russian regime to grant the Jews basic human rights, and he had not been succeeding. So he, he saw this as his method. And this very much was in keeping with his relationship with Roosevelt, uh, who was absolutely hammering corporations and, in fact, used Northern Securities, which had been formed by Schiff and J.P. Morgan, as the test case for his trust busting. But because Schiff was sympathetic to uh, helping on other issues relating to Jewish human rights, uh, he was sometimes willing to overlook those things. You mentioned the uh, the support for Japan in the war with Russia. I mean, that, that gets to another one of the really important themes uh, in the book, which is this idea uh, of the conspiracy theories about a worldwide Jewish cabal, uh, including the likes of Schiff, one that conspiracists said brought down the Romanovs uh, in in Russia and, and spread its tentacles everywhere. I mean, that that's a, a part of the story that has a resonance today, but it, it is also fascinating historically, isn't it? It's extremely uh, fascinating historically. You know, and at that time period, this is what bankers did. They helped to finance the war requirements for various nations. And this, of course, happened during World War I with um, J.P. Morgan and company as well, who were uh, major funders of the Allies. But one of the reasons why I thought it was very important to do this book, one of the reasons why I thought it was important to call it the Money Kings and not shy away from a term that might make some people uncomfortable, is that this is a book that is about debunking some of the stereotypes and myths that are out there, explaining and exploring the rise of modern anti-Semitism. You know, I kept coming back to this idea of, you know, J.P. Morgan was a money king. Jacob Schiff, who was every inch his equal, has to reside in the gilded ghetto. Why is this? And so for many decades, uh, conspiracy theorists seem to be the only one who cared about Schiff although he's one of the most pivotal figures in modern American history. Um, and they cared not about him not for any valid reasons. It was all in service of bolstering conspiracy theories that were used to attack Jews. Um, so I thought it was very important to put the full story out there and really dismantle some of these myths that existed. Now, coming back to this point about the Russo-Japanese War, immensely fascinating experience. Here you have a Jewish banker who is actually funding um, the Japanese in this battle against Russia. Doesn't that mean that he uh, caused the overthrow of the Russian Tsar? Well, not exactly, um, because the Russian Revolution 
comes uh, in 1917. And Schiff's intentions were not secret at the time, really. He was very vocal about his opposition to the Russian Empire and to possible regime change there. Um, and, you know, with all conspiracy theories, they take an element of truth and then wrap it with a, a whole lot of lies. So the element of truth here was that Schiff uh, did fund the Japanese. He did help to fund revolutionary propaganda during the Russo-Japanese War. The conspiracy theory is that he ordered the murder of the Tsar and his family. Obviously, that did not occur. I mean, it is interesting coming back to the the point you made at the beginning there and linking it in with these conspiracy theories that you say quite openly that that is part of the reason why you were actually hesitant about writing the book in the first instance, that you were sensitive about the anti-Semitic representation uh, of, of Jews in, being in control of banking and the media uh, and part of this global uh, conspiracy and so on. But but ultimately, you decided that the best way to deal with this was to confront it head on. I really had to think hard about whether I was going to write this book and whether I was going to call it The Money Kings. Um, those were two things that were on my mind quite a bit throughout the entire process. And really, I, I come back to this point that, you know, conspiracy theorists have disfigured the legacy of Schiff uh, and the Warburgs and others who I write about. And everything that they did in, in their lives is refracted through this nefarious lens, um, even, even their philanthropy. So I really felt as a Jew myself and as someone who is very sensitive to these stereotypes, um, I thought it was important to tell the full story of who they were and what they did. Because frankly, a lot of these people have not been given their historical due oftentimes initially because they were Jewish. The, the brilliance and, and the resilience actually uh, jumps off the page uh, in the book that these characters represent some of the most important financial um, minds in American history, founding some of the most illustrious uh, firms, Goldman Sachs, uh, Seligman, uh, Kuhn Loeb, um, Lehman Brothers, and, uh, and so on. But I mean, they, they all play a pivotal role, it seems to me, in turning the United States from a backwater that it is when when they arrive in the, the middle of the 19th century to the foremost economic and financial power on earth. I think it's important to, you know, to note that the lens of my book really is zeroing in on these firms and these bankers. Obviously, there are a great many people involved in this effort. I, I, I come back to people like J.P. Morgan, but, you know, at various points in terms of the rise of the railroads, which were really the arteries of the national economy during that era. Um, Schiff was, you know, the foremost railroad uh, financier of his time, even more so perhaps in some cases than uh, Morgan himself, who was also associated with the railroads. But, you know, Paul Warburg helped to um, stabilize the national economy. We didn't have a central bank. Um, up until the early 1900s, when he arrived in this country from Germany, he was he was shocked at the primitive state of affairs in this country where uh, our currency supply did not contract or expand based on demand. So there were always bank runs and financial shocks based on this. He began pushing immediately for some type of central bank and Schiff and Warburg on their daily walks to the office, Schiff would say, I mean, that's a great idea, but Americans are never going to go for that idea. But 
Warburg pushed forward and the eventual result was, uh, was the Federal Reserve, which is quite remarkable. But then you have stuff like the progressive income tax. Uh, Edwin Seligman, who was a Columbia University economist, the son of Joseph Seligman, was one of the intellectual forefathers of the progressive income tax and, and really was a crusader for the ratification of the 16th Amendment. Um, these guys were just absolutely pivotal to the foundations of the modern economy. And if you look at uh, firms such as Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers, um, Henry Goldman and Philip Lehman helped to pioneer the modern IPO. Before them, they were not often taking retail companies public. Morgan Schiff and the others were really uh, laser focused on industrial concerns, railroads. Lehman and Goldman figured out that there was a different way to value uh, value stocks. And it wasn't just about their physical assets. It was about looking at their earning power, about their intangible elements, such as goodwill and brand and customer loyalty and that sort of thing. Um, and through their efforts, we ended up with companies, you know, like Sears and Woolworth, um, Underwood typewriter, the list goes on. As well, the book is so resonant uh, with contemporary politics. I mean, we often hear about, for example, Joe Biden looking back to the New Deal, but there are also, it seems to be, ways in which he looks back to the progressive era and the Gilded Age too, and, and these characters that you're writing about. It's fascinating. His, his regulatory policies are almost an explicit throwback to the Gilded Age and, uh, and this really remarkable... A congressional investigation that occurred. It was targeting Jacob Schiff and J.P. Morgan. It was an investigation into the control of money and credit into the so-called money trust. Um, Louis Brandeis, the future Supreme Court justice, wrote a lot about the findings of this investigation, and it really became a national sensation. And together, these helped to fuel uh, sort of the modern trust-busting era, led to the creation of the Federal Trade Commission. And many of Biden's regulators call themselves uh, new Brandesians. They, they are taking their lessons from this era of really rapid wealth consolidation um, and this period when monopolies were busted. We talked earlier about uh, Schiff supporting Japan in the war uh, with Russia. Um, what about the current Israel-Hamas uh, conflict? Does, it, does the history of these Jewish bankers tell us anything uh, about American uh, responses to that war, do you think? It's so fascinating. I never really expected there to be so many echoes with this history and what's happening presently, but there very much are, and that extends to Israel and Zionism. Interestingly, many American Jews during the uh, turn of the century were, were very opposed to Zionism. Schiff was among them. Um, in fact, he clashed so bitterly with Zionists during this period that at one point in a tearful speech, he actually threw up his hands and said, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with Jewish affairs. I don't want to be involved anymore. Of course, he couldn't bring himself to eventually do that. But his reasoning was that they feared during this period that Zionism would stir up more anti-Semitism and that it would lend credence to this age-old uh, and lethal charge that Jews possessed dual loyalties and could never be um, good citizens of any one nation because they were only loyal to Jews. 
Now, Schiff died in 1920. So two major things happened after this. Um, the United States closes its door to immigrants, not just Jewish immigrants, but immigrants from everywhere. It was no longer possible for Jews to immigrate in any great number um, to the United States. And of course, then comes World War II, um, which ends up making the case that the Zionists had been making for decades that Jews required a homeland of their own where they can control their own defense and immigration policy. But um, American Jews were very uncomfortable with this idea of, of Zionism and the creation of a Jewish state, uh, at, at least initially. And then sometimes they, they warmed to this idea. But even today, there are, there are many divisions among American Jews about Israel and about Zionism. Even beyond the, the international element, I mean, many uh, Jewish Americans have expressed their frustration about the response uh, here in the United States to the events of uh, October the 7th. I mean, uh, do you think there are, are lessons that we can learn from the experience of the Money Kings in the way that they combated anti-Semitism? Schiff always would attempt to push back against anti-Semitism vigorously wherever he saw it. He really just felt as if you couldn't let it flourish or else it would continue to grow and grow. There was one exception to this. And this was perhaps uh, one of the biggest miscalculations of his life. You know, towards the end of his life, Schiff was, would die a year later. Um, Henry Ford uh, purchases the Dearborn Independent and very quickly turns it to the single-minded purpose of attacking Jews um, and international bankers for really everything from causing wars and financial panics, even to the rise of popular music, such as jazz, which it said was a Jewish creation, uh, which was degenerating American culture for a period of seven years, over 92 issues, Henry Ford's Dearborn independent attacked Jews. Now Schiff, when this first started occurring, said, I don't think we should give this any attention. I don't think we should push back vigorously. I think it might pour gasoline on this fire. Uh, what he didn't realize and what he couldn't have realized is that that fire was already burning and it would never stop. And, you know, the Dubron Independent and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which it, it disseminated in theme and by covering it explicitly, um, would become the basis of modern anti-Semitism that Jews have been plagued by ever since. You do see direct results. As, as you say, you mentioned the Johnson-Reed Act of, of 1924, which kind of comes shortly after that. And as well, it, it's not just something which is about mass immigration and the experience of, uh, of all Jews. A lot of it is targeted at Jewish elites as well. For example, at Harvard putting up a block uh, to entry uh, to Jews in the 1920s, that in some ways that seems almost a direct response to the success of uh, characters like your Money Kings. Yes, I mean, and you know, the Johnson Reed Act imposed uh, quotas on the immigrants coming to the country. Uh, elite universities such as Harvard very much did did the same thing. Now, a lot of the scions of the men that I write about, the families that I write about, they had come through Harvard. Um, some had taken prominent positions there. And for all of this to sort of start coming crashing down 
upon them was just deeply traumatic. So the book is The Money Kings, the epic story of the Jewish immigrants who transformed Wall Street and shaped modern America. It's written by my guest, Daniel Shulman, and published by Knopf. Uh, but for now, Dan, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. 